Man, it's good to see you. Hey, my name is Eric. I send you greetings from uh, McLean Bible Church, Arlington, and it's good to be with you uh, today. Man, I know when you come to somebody else's church, uh, I know you know the drill. You know, pastor gets up here and says a whole bunch of nice things about the, about the pastor at the church. Half the stuff is untrue, right? But I can tell you that everything that I'm about to say about Nate Crew uh, is true. Man, um, man I probably, I've known Nate for over a decade and there isn't a person that has pointed me to Jesus to a greater degree in my life than Nate. So I say that all that to say if you're new and you're visiting and you're trying to find a good church here uh, and you're looking for someone to shepherd you, uh, I, I can't think of anyone's hands that you would be better in um, than um, Nate as he follows Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you guys uh, with that. Um, go ahead and turn to uh, Mark 8. Uh, Mark 8, we're going to be at, start at verse 27. And move on to verse 38, Mark 8, 27 through um, 38. You see, you guys are in the middle of a series titled, uh, Who is Jesus? And there's not a more important question in your life that you can ever settle than that one. And who is Jesus? Uh, my wife and I, um, Janique, uh, one of the things that uh, we do pretty much, uh, well, most nights uh, of the week, um, you're going to hear this and you're going to feel like, man, y'all are old. But what do we do uh, is we watch Jeopardy together. That's what we do, right? And we got a running competition, really not keep a score, but I'm winning. Um, but um, we watch the show, you know, most of the questions we get wrong, and you know, some of the questions, uh, luckily, uh, we get right. And some of you Gen Z people in the room, you probably don't even know what Jeopardy is. So really quickly, we're going to play. We're going to do one question, okay? You ready? And so when, you, when I ask the question, or when I give you the statement, you have to answer in the form of a question, and you have to say, who is, fill in the blank, right? You guys ready? All right, who it is? Question is this. Uh, which DMV area pastor is most likely to obnoxiously say roll tide after an Alabama football win? Answer is what? Y'all got it. Y'all got it. Listen, if I was Alex, I would give you guys 400 points for that. But listen, I bring that up because for too many of us, man, when we think about that question, who is Jesus, we think that it's simply enough for us to give that answer to a statement. We think eternal life is simply a matter of getting that question right or wrong. And so if the statement is uh, the name of a first century Jew who died on a Roman cross and rose again, you know, we would say the answer is who of Jesus. And for many people in your life, they think the pathway to eternal life is to simply answer that question correctly. And I would say, yeah, it's true. We need to get that answer right. But to understand and to know and to follow Jesus is not as simple as to cognitively assent to that truth. You see, what makes a disciple is by the power of the Holy Spirit to give your life fully to be transformed by that statement. It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord. We have to give our lives, reorient our lives around that statement. This is what the Spirit of God does in us. So our lives completely change when we encounter Jesus and all that he is, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. So with that said, as you think about that, I want you to read with me Mark 8, 27 to 38. This is the word of God. Here we go. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him. John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return, to his soul, in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, when the Son of Man also be ashamed, when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And this is the word of God. See, today what we're going to do is from this passage, we're going to talk about how a proper understanding of Jesus' identity and a proper understanding of the cross should transform each and every single one of us. Uh, But before I do, let me take a moment to pray, and then we'll get into it, all right? Let's pray. Um, Father, I stand before these people, and I stand before you, a weak and feeble man. I have nothing within myself that can cause any kind of lasting change in anybody in this room because I can't even change myself. We know it's the Spirit of God that, 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 that comes down, that transforms each and every single one of us. And so I pray that your words are platformed today and not mine, and that we'll be a people sitting in rapt detention because of the sheer fact that the God of the universe, the very God that hung the galaxies in display, in, into place, knows the number of hairs on our head. That God is speaking to us right now through his word, and may we say, Whatever you tell us, we'll do it. God, will you help us? We need you. Uh, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen, amen. amen. All right, guys, so we're going to experience, like, what type of transformation should you expect as a follower of Jesus Christ? As you understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, what should you experience? What shifts should you experience in your life? And so what I want you to do today is this. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to consider your orientation to Jesus right now. I want you to consider the truth that Jesus is Lord and respond to that in faith and obedience. And for many of you, I know you already know Jesus Christ. And I want you today to simply think about this, these shifts, these, this transformation that I'm about to describe. I want you to ask yourself, is this true in my life? All right, so here's shift number one I'm going to give you. This is what you experience as follower of Jesus Christ. You, you experience this shift from ignorance about Jesus to knowing Jesus. From ignorance about Jesus to knowing Jesus. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Jesus pretty much just saying, Listen, I've been doing all of these miracles. I've been out here in the streets. I've been doing all of this stuff, and I know people to talk about me. So I'm asking you, disciples, who are people saying that I am? And since the disciples, they have their ear to public opinion. They know what people are saying about him. They say in verse 28, they say, Hey, people are saying that you're John the Baptist. They're saying you're Elijah. 
They're saying you're one of the prophets. But I want you to notice something here. All of these are opinions about Jesus, but catch this. All of these are positive opinions about Jesus. Like, we tend to think that someone's salvation hinges on them moving from having a negative opinion about Jesus to a positive opinion about Jesus. But here's the thing. Look at this. All of these opinions are positive opinions. None of them are insults. But here's the issue. While these opinions are positive, all of these fall woefully short of who Jesus actually is. See, these opinions demonstrate a, 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 a really a disorientation, an improper relationship between people and the real Jesus Christ. Man, I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics this week. Uh, I mean, I've been watching them, but the big story uh, that, um, you know, we saw this week is really the story of Simone Biles, who is probably the greatest gymnast ever, and she pulled herself out of the individual and team events, right? And it's crazy because uh, a whole bunch of people had an opinion about whether or not she should have did that, including a whole bunch of people who can't even do a cartwheel, was out here saying, listen, she should have did this or that. Okay. I said, I'm going to withhold judgment from that. But when it comes from Simone Biles, everybody um, was trying to insert a reason of why she pulled herself out. Some people were like, hey, maybe she's hurt. Other people were like, hey, maybe there's some kind of mental illness, depression, anxiety that was going on. But later on, we actually found out the, uh, the, the real reason. It's a reason that uh, is actually familiar to gymnasts, but not familiar to regular people like you and me. Uh, she said she was dealing with something called the twisties. Had never heard that term before, but apparently it's what gymnasts call kind of a mental block. It's when gymnasts are in midair and they lose track of their position in relation to the ground. Loss of orientation in regards to the ground because it's dangerous because if you're in the air, you don't know how much distance you have between you and the ground. You, you can do too many flips or do too few and, and land on a part of the body that you're not supposed to land on, and it can be incredibly dangerous. So I'm thinking about her. Like, she's in midair. The, the ground's fastly approaching. She doesn't understand her relationship to the ground. She's not perceiving the ground correctly. But her relationship to the ground can be the difference between her winning the gold medal and her doing herself serious bodily, seriously of serious bodily harm. And I say all of that to say it's because you guys are in the middle of who is Jesus. And the reason why you are in the middle of this series is because spiritually speaking, there are so many people in our city, in our world, even in our churches, who have a spiritual case of the twisties. They have an improper relationship with the God that they're sure to meet. We're living life in midair. Every single one of us is heading toward meeting the Jesus that we, whether we believe in him or not, we'll all stand before Jesus and he will judge us. And the way to stick the landing, the way for us to actually have a proper relationship with God and be able to stand before him in joy and not in shame in the end is to have the right orientation to the Jesus that we'll meet. And for many of us, and it says in this text, many people have a spiritual case of the twisties. They have a, a wrong orientation to who Jesus is. They actually may have a positive opinion about Jesus, but it's not fully who he is. Even in our culture, we've created a Jesus that's nice and affirming. And for many people, they know this Jesus, but they're ignorant to who he actually is. And this is why in verse 29... The same question that Jesus poses to his disciples is the question that he poses to us. What does he say in verse 29? He says, but who do you say that I am? Every single one of us has to decide that question. 
who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered. He says, you're the Christ. Peter gets it right. Guys, let, 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 let me clue you into something. The masses tend to get Jesus wrong. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ get him right. And what I mean by all of that is this, and I'm going to give you kind of a, a proof that you've actually gotten Jesus right. If you claim to follow a Jesus that never challenges your point of view, if you claim to follow a Jesus that ne- always agrees with your viewpoint on everything and never challenges you to the core, that's how you can know, that's a sure indication that you've gotten him wrong. See, the first step to following Jesus is getting his identity right. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah who is not simply to come to be a good example or not simply to come to be your friend. Like, all of those are true, but he's much more than that. He's come to be your Messiah, Messiah in order to save you from your sin. He's come to be your Messiah in order to be your loving Lord. And you can't claim to have a relationship with Jesus unless you've submitted to him. Unless unless you said, listen, I'm no longer following my own way. I'm following you, Jesus, now. We need to get his his identity right. But that's not the only shift we need to make. Because if we only make that shift in getting Jesus' identity right, we've only gotten to the level of the head. Let's move to the second shift real quick. So I've already said we move from ignorance about Jesus to knowing Jesus. But here's shift number two that we will make if we're truly following Jesus. We will move from self-centeredness to being gospel-centered. From self-centeredness to being centered, founded, rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. Jesus is talking, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said this plainly. And check out verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. How bold you got to be to rebuke the Son of God. Let's keep moving. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Check this out. Peter was cool with Jesus being the Christ. However, Jesus had a different Christ in mind. Jesus thought, I mean, Peter thought that uh, Jesus was going to be a political messiah. What Peter thought is that Jesus was straight up coming, and he was going to take over the world by force. And that's no doubt that Peter, even the rest of the disciples, thought that Jesus would eventually rise up, overthrow the Roman government, and establish his kingdom on earth right then. And it's likely that because Peter followed him from day one, Peter thought, hey, listen, since I've been following you from day one, when you take over, that means good for me. I get perks. Right? Like, I've been walking around with you. You've said, like, there's no place to lay my head. I've been homeless with you. I've been walking around with you. That means that I'm going to have a special place. I'm following you. I'm expecting you to hook me up. Now, here's the thing. Nowhere in their minds, nowhere in Peter's mind did, did he think that he was following a Savior that would die. And that's why Peter says all that. He rebukes Jesus when Jesus is talking about the cross. And here's the thing. Right after that, Jesus just straight up crushes Peter. I feel so bad for him. Right? Here's the thing. Like, I've been called a lot of names in my life, if you would believe. I've never been called Satan. <laughs> and that's straight up what Jesus did. Straight up calls the man Satan. 
And this reminds me of something. This helps us understand something. Not only do you need to get the identity of Jesus right, you need to get what he came to do right. And what did Jesus came to do? That's the theme of the sermon today. He came to die on a cross. He came to die. Mark 10, 45, an amazing verse. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does all that mean? This is an amazing picture. That the king of the universe would lay down his entire life, his whole life, for the people that he made. That the king who deserves unquestioned service would lay down his life in an act of, 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 of unmentionable selfless service. To the life for the lives of the people that he has made. And you may be new here. And you're trying to understand what all this gospel is about and why did Jesus have to come to die and, and all of this. And so I do want to take a moment right now to simply explain it to you. That listen, Jesus laid down this life on the cross because without his death, we would be lost and we would spend eternity separated from him under his wrath. That's what the gospel is. The gospel declares this, that every single person on this planet, while we've been made by God, what we've done is there's a time that has come that we've all sinned against God. We said, God, you know what? You said that you love me and you know the path of my joy, but you know what? I don't believe you. But all of us, we've done, we, we've done things that we've declared that, God, uh, you're not trustworthy. God, you're not good. God, I know better than you. The Bible calls that sin. And because of our sin, the wrath of a holy God is against us. God is holy. He can't, he can't stand in the presence of sin. And this is how we, he responds to that. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from him. But I do want to pause there because for many of us, when we talk about God's anger and wrath, we get uncomfortable. I see many of you guys shifting to your seats right now. And the reason why is because we tend to think that God's wrath and God's love are two separate things. That God's wrath and God's love, there's no way to kind of reconcile those two things. Either God is loving or God is wrathful. But let me declare to you something that somebody once helped me understand. That God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. Man, one theologian that really helped me understand this, man, and sometimes you have to go outside of America to help, our, to help us understand that, eat, that, that, that help us understand this whole concept of God's wrath is because in a place of prosperity like, a, like America, we can tend to think that God's, that, that, our, um, that, that, that amazing things happen in our lives is an indication of God's love for us. So there's a theologian, Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who had, um, man, lived through even genocide in his own country more than anybody has helped me understand how God's wrath can actually be reconciled with God's love. Uh, let me hear, I mean, let me let you hear this. I've actually said this many times before in other sermons, so if you've heard a sermon of mine, you might have heard this quote before. But here it is. So helpful. He said this. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature, but that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Check this out. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 
According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million people were displaced. My cities and my villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry with, I, can't, I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the, in the decade, in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. And here's the money line. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Y'all get that, man? I know we look around the world today, man, and we have a thirst for justice. And some of, the, um, the, some of the comfort that we have is that we serve a loving God that is rightly angry with injustice. That's comforting. When we see a, a child being sexually trafficked, when we see all the injustice or slavery right now that's happening in other parts of the world, we should rightly seethe with anger. But then here's the issue, guys. It's very easy for us to be anger, angry with all the injustice out there and not be too angry with all the injustice that's happening in here. Here's the thing, man. It's so easy for us to be angry with everything that's out there, but when it comes to us, we want a pass. But God is completely holy. He's just not angry at the, at, at the, at the injustices that we consider heinous. He's, he, he's angry at the greatest injustice, the fact that the people that he created will ultimately turn his back on them. But here's the beautiful picture. God sent his son Jesus as a remedy for that to die in our place for our sin so that anybody anywhere can call on the name of Jesus and be made right with the holy God. This is good news. We can receive the Father's mercy instead of his wrath because on the cross, Jesus, the man who stood in our place, received the Father's wrath. That's good news this morning. And it's good news that Peter couldn't see in the moment. Because why? Because he was thinking about himself. And similarly for us, we can, we can be hidden from the, uh, we, it can be difficult for us to see the beauty of the gospel and its transformational power. When we spend so much time navel-gazing at ourselves and worried about ourselves rather than thinking about and meditating on the beautiful message of the gospel. Uh, I love this verse, Romans 8. It says this. It says, he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? And that's a reminder of this, that we serve a God in heaven that's not holding out on us. Man, one analogy that I constantly think of, man, in, in illustrating that fact is the fact that my dad was a brick mason. Hands were mangled all the time. Man, you couldn't even take fingerprints on them anymore because, like, all the mortar had, like, gotten into his fingers. Now, I remember being a kid, and there was a moment in which I was complaining to him about something that I wanted and I didn't have. I remember looking at him and saying, I don't know what 13-year-old says to their parent, but I said to him, man, you don't want me to be happy. And this joker, I thought he was going to go clean off of me, but he did something counterintuitive, even to himself. Uh, he got down on his knees, and he showed me his hands, who through years had been caked with mortar. They were beat up. I just shared that with you guys. 
He sat there. He showed me his hands. He said, look at my hands. I wake up every day at 3.30 in the morning to go to work in order to provide for you. There is nobody on planet Earth that wants your happiness more than I do. And I share all of that to say this. I share all of that to say this. The cross frees us from self-preoccupation and selfishness. Because the reason why we're self-centered and self-preoccupied is because we tend to think that there's nobody that's going to love us better than we can love ourselves. And the cross says otherwise. The cross says that you have a Father in heaven that loves you, cares for you, knows the path to your joy better than you do. He gave his son, and listen to me, that's the indication that he's not holding out on you. On the cross, our Savior is holding out his nail-scarred hands to us, saying, this is what I've done for you. Don't you ever believe that I'm holding out on you. And this frees us from self-centeredness to actually be worried about the people around us. I've been watching the Olympics. It's kind of like water polo. I ain't never played in my life because I know I would drown if I played. That's six and a half feet of water, right? Like, I can't, listen, I can't swim and hold a ball and throw it at a goal, but that's exactly what these people are doing, right? Like, I would just be on the side of the pool holding on to the side of the pool. (laughs) But what's crazy about water polo is that they are so secure in their ability to stay afloat that they're able to use their hands and now do other stuff. And I share all of that to say this. When you are secure in the love of God and you know that he loves you more than you love yourself, guess what? You are now free to use your hands differently. You don't always have to use your hands to serve yourself anymore. You can lift your hands and worship the one true God now because you're done worshiping yourself. And you can use your hands to help other people now. And so my question for you today is, has that happened to you? Has the gospel you come into grips with what Jesus come to, did at the cross at Calvary, has that freed you? From self-preoccupation, has that made you occupy, I mean, occupied with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the good of other people? And let me tell you today that this is not a one-time thing. I feel like throughout our lives, man, we are constantly coming back to the gospel, man. We are constantly drifting towards selfishness and self-centeredness, and then we need to be reminded to the gospel so that we can drift back and seeing other people before we see ourselves. See, for some of us today right now, we've had some hard things happen to our lives, and we're nursing our pain right now. And right now, you're forgetting the fact that because of the gospel, that Christ has forgiven you of your pain that you've caused him, and he's given you the power to forgive. Remember that today. For some of you, you are so focused on what you don't have right now that you've lost Sight of the fact of what Jesus has already given you in the gospel. He's given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have more than enough in him. For some of you, you are so focused on your loneliness right now that you forgot about the gospel. That in the gospel, Jesus has reconciled you to God. So that when you trust in the gospel, the God of the universe is with you. You are not alone. And so I pray even this, that this point that I'm making right now would help you once again remember what you have in the gospel and that you move from being self-centered and navel-gazing and that you'll look out in the glory of what you have in Christ and that you look out at your neighbor and you serve them as Christ would. But let me give you guys my last point really quick. I talked about from being, moving from self-centered to being gospel-centered, moving from being ignorant about Jesus to um, knowing who he is. But here's the third shift that you need to make in this text. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be moving from living life for comfort's sake 
and now living for Christ's sake. Look at verse 34. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, a film with the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And guys, for many of us, and I want to move us to the next step, for many of us, man, um, many of us have begun to follow Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, the rubber hits the road in our following of Jesus Christ when you hit moments in life when life doesn't make sense. And there can be periods of your life, man, when the rug gets pulled out in front of you, when you don't know what's going on, when following Jesus will actually cost you something, and you have the choice, will you die to your desires in a moment, and will you follow him, or will you follow what your desires are telling you in the moment? And while discipleship involves knowing about Jesus and what he came to do, listen to me, the process doesn't stop there. Matter of fact, if you merely stop at discipleship being all about you being able to identify Jesus and what he came to do, here's the thing, you've only gone as far as the demons go. And you may look at me and be like, yo, Eric, wait, whoa, that's crazy, man. What are you talking about? Let me explain. In the book of Mark, every single time a demon speaks up about the identity of Jesus, they always get Jesus' identity right. They never get it wrong. Mark 1, 25, demon speaks up. What does he call Jesus? The Holy One of God. Mark 3, 11, demon speaks up. What does he say? You are the Son of God. Mark 5, 7, he speaks up. What does he say? Son of the Most High God. Listen to me. If demons were playing Jeopardy along with us, they might beat us to the buzzer. And if you are here, it might be the case that you know a lot about Jesus. You know, what he, you know who he is. You know what he's done. But you've never gotten to a point where you have, you've allowed that truth to make a claim on your life. You've never gotten to the point where you've actually taken up your cross and follow Jesus come what may, regardless of what happened. No matter what I want, Jesus, I'm following you because you are leading me to joy, and your GPS is calibrated to that better than mine is. I'm going to get lost. You can lead me there. I'm going to trust you. We need to give Jesus our life because that's going to be a day in which Jesus is going to take you in a, in a completely opposite direction of what you want. And in that moment you got to answer this question. Did I come to Jesus to get something from him or to offer myself to him? See, in order to follow Jesus, we must follow him no matter what. And let me encourage you guys. I know this text talks about dying to ourselves and following Jesus. But this is why I love verse 35. Verse 35 says, for whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for the, my sake and the gospels will save it. What he's trying to say is this. There is not a better path to joy in this life than to die to yourself now. Following him is hard. Man, I don't want to sugarcoat that. But it leads to the joy in him now and joy in him later. Holding on to your desires and comfort will give you some very temporary pleasure and an eternity of pain. Follow him. There's no greater and lasting joy than to be locked in step 
with the God that you were created to be in relationship with. So I want to go ahead and encourage the band to come back up. I'm going to go ahead and shut it down here. But I want to encourage you guys to take the very next step. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for you at Calvary, and in light of the fact that if you've trusted and believed in him, Jesus is calling you to something today. None of us should walk out of here unchanged by his word. For some of you who are here today, it may be, the, I don't know, the first time you heard the gospel, or, or maybe you've heard it many times and you've never responded to it. Let me rest assured, God of heaven is speaking to you right now, and you know what he's saying? He's saying to repent and believe in me. I want to encourage you to leave the comfort of your sin and to trust in Jesus as your Savior. For some of you in this room, maybe he's calling you to take another step. Maybe you've trusted and believed in Jesus, and the very next step that you need to take is simply to be baptized. See, baptism is the, it's the first act of obedience that Jesus Christ gives his followers. So maybe God is calling you today, hey, listen, I need to leave the comfort of whatever's holding me back. Maybe it's fear of man, I don't know, and to be baptized. For some of you, maybe the next step is you joining a local church community. I mean, I know I pastor another church, but let me tell you, like I said it before, you are in good hands here at City Light. Get here, join a group so that you can get to know people, people can come to know you and encourage you in Christ's likeness. Maybe God is calling you to forgive somebody that's been, it's been hard to forgive. Maybe God is calling you to let someone go. Maybe God is calling you to apologize to somebody, maybe even in this room. Because Jesus Christ has poured his blood out on Calvary and his spirit is inside of you. Listen to me. He's given you the power to do whatever he's called you to do. Do it. All right. I'm over time. I'm three minutes over. And so let me pray. And then I'm going to get off stage and we're going to sing to the Lord together. All right, let's get it. Father, you are too good to us. We don't deserve it. And yet you have always been in the business of giving undeserved grace to the people that you have made. Father, I pray that you'll help us live in light of the gospel that we say we believe. I pray that our lives and individually and as a community look markedly different than the people around us. That they see countercultural love between us if they see us as a community doing things that are counter to our past lives because we have a new lease on life. We have a vision of Jesus and him dying for us and rising again and because that vision has captured us. Because Jesus, you've saved us. We live life anew. And so Father, would you help us today? God, I know your word can reach places that my voice can't. And so God, um, I pray that you will help people today. I pray that you will Help us to know that obedience is always worth it and that we can trust you with our lives. We thank you for the cross, how it makes all of that possible. And so I pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys stand along with us.